Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Impact of Influence. The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. As always, so grateful you decided to spend some time with us and hear about the latest in the Murdoch mess, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. And you can reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. So, Seton, we're going to get into the Russell Lafitte trial, the federal trial. Yes, I've spent my week. Glued to Twitter, I've been following John Monk, Raleigh Benson, Drew Tripp, following all the latest on what's happening in this Russell Lafitte trial. We're going to bring it to you, and uh, next week you plan on hitting Charleston to see the next stage of the trial? Right. I was intending to go on Thursday, but weather, we had a tropical storm, so that prevented me from attending on Thursday, but I will be back next week. And no trial on Veterans Day. My mom and dad, who are in their 80s, are saying, I, I, we want to go to the trial. How do we go? It's just so funny to me. I've never seen them interested in anything other than Perry Mason, so this will be <laughs> good to see what's happening. Well, we bring in our legal analyst. He's a former DA and a former defense attorney, John Snyder. Hello, John. Hello, and I'm definitely not Perry Mason. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take this kind of day by day as the trial progressed. Remind me, Monday, you were there. What happened Monday? Those were the pretrial hearing, and then jury selection started on Tuesday. And we were very surprised on Tuesday how quickly the jury was selected. And in fact, it happened while we were recording one of our episodes. Uh, So let's start with that, John. We thought it would be a little longer, and you've told, told us that federal jury selection is usually less time-consuming than anything at the state or local level, but that was quickly that they picked uh, the jury. Does that signify anything, mean anything? That doesn't signify anything other than this judge is going to keep tight control over this case, and so he is in charge, and he picked the jury. He picked it fast. He knew what questions to ask. He relied on the honest answers and responses that the jurors gave in their questionnaires and move forward quickly. Next thing up is opening statements. Now, I added on our last episode just a little bit about the opening statements because they were came in as we were doing the episode, but we didn't have John with us. So let's talk about those opening statements. The 45 minutes for the prosecutor, Emily Limehouse, in her opening statement. It seemed like the prosecutors are trying to say that Russell Lafitte was a willing participant in these crimes. Uh, and Lafitte's attorneys are saying that he was just a, another victim of Alec Murdoch's. Uh, is that what you take away from this, John Snyder? They're saying that not only was he a knowing 
participant, but that he benefited from it and he engaged in the concealment of facts and material facts in an effort to commit a crime. And so you're not only do we hear that in the opening argument, but you're seeing that in the questioning that's happening in court that we're going to touch on in a little bit. The defense again reiterates he didn't he he didn't know that he was doing anything wrong. And if he did, it wasn't illegal. It might not have been the best practice, but it wasn't it wasn't illegal. And those are the two kind of the, the, those are the the two ends of the pole that, that we're dealing with. And now the evidence will come in and see which 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 way the jury goes. So I want to talk about before we get into the witnesses, the first three witnesses are actually family members of Russell Lafitte. Obviously, this is going to make for some sort of awkward, weird holiday season with them. (laughs) How does this happen? Do these family members have to be willing to participate or were they subpoenaed by the prosecution? The family members are subpoenaed by the federal government and they cannot not appear. You could try to quash, but they're going to be compelled to testify. And people out there might be wondering, well, well, don't you have privilege? Isn't there something protecting the communication between family members? And and the answer to that is no. Uh, Privilege only exists between spouses, doctors, pastors, and mental health professionals. That's it. So if if a daughter calls a, a father and says, I just got arrested and, you know, I'm really sorry that I that I punched that girl in the face, but she deserved it. The, the father can be called to testify about what the daughter said to him. And Norris Lafitte, who is a cousin of Russell's, was said to be fighting back tears during his testimony at times. I, I wanted, it was interesting to me that before this started, the judge said this is not about Alec Murdoch. But then, his name is mentioned, I don't know, 20-some times by both parties as they do the opening statements. And one of the things they, the, the prosecution comes right out of the gate with is the morning of June 7th, 2021, the same day Alec Murdoch's wife and son were found murdered, a staff member of Murdoch's law firm confronted him about missing legal fees. This is a new revelation, and we find out who that was eventually. But... My question to you, John, is what happened to this thing of this is not about Alec Murdoch? Well, you you can't have this case without Alec being brought in, discussed, the transactions being brought forward. But what the judge was saying was you can't judge Lafitte by Alex's behavior and defense. You can't argue that Alex is guilty. Because your client is the one that's on trial. What does the murder have to do with the financial crimes that Russell Lafitte committed? Or is the prosecution making sure the jury is aware that Russell Lafitte is connected to a potential double murderer? I might call that ringing the bell. And so while the murder itself has zero to do with it, it is brought out. I think the the prosecution wants to just kind of get into people's head Mm -hmm. why we're here today. And it may be that the financial crimes being discovered 
are all relate back to why the murder occurred. And one other question, this one's about the, the defense opening statement. They talk about other than saying Russell is a great guy and he, what he did was, you know, not illegal, but probably wrong. They also talk about Lafitte allegedly cooperating with FBI and state law enforcement. And then the uh, defense attorney says, Sled didn't like what Lafitte said, so that's why we're here. That's an interesting take. What, coming up against the state law enforcement, where do you think we're going with that? The Sled investigators are going to be called as witnesses because they they took initial statements from Russell, and they, they'll either be called in the case in chief or they'll be called by the defense to be like, now, Officer so-and-so, didn't you sit down with my client uh, in Columbia, yes, sir. Did, didn't for seven hours he run you through all the financial transactions, telling you exactly what happened and how it happened? Well, yes, sir. Does that sound like a guy that that committed a crime and is part of a massive conspiracy to defraud people? Well, okay. yeah, I mean that's that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're they're bringing this up to say Russell wasn't hiding anything, never hid anything. And he's being punished for giving the state and the federal government evidence they needed to go after Alec. All right, let's go to uh, the first witness. Seton, where do you want to start with Norris Lafitte? Norris Lafitte is a sitting board member of Palmetto State Bank. And one thing he described is when Russell was ousted from the bank, that everyone voted to oust him except for his father and that his sister did abstain. He describes in his testimony is a $750,000 loan, which was made to Alex in mid-July of 2021, which was just several weeks after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. And this loan was made to renovate a beach house, the Edisto Beach House, but apparently the money was not used to renovate the beach house. It was to pay back Chris Wilson and also to fix an overdraw in his checking account. I want to mention who Chris Wilson is. If you don't remember the name, it's the name you heard when we were finding out what was Alec doing the night of the murders. His attorneys said that, well, one thing, he was on the phone with Chris Wilson twice on the way to his mother's house the night of the murders and twice on the way back from his mother's house. Chris Wilson is a longtime friend of Alec Murdoch's, a co-counsel on some cases, which explains some of these legal fees that would be going to Chris Wilson. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. John, my first question to you is, do you think the father and the sister could be in trouble with aiding and giving Alec Murdoch this loan? My, my guess is that at this point, they have already gone through whatever ringer they're, they're going to go through. And so maybe even part of their testimony was was a you know an agreement not to prosecute in exchange for truthful testimony. That doesn't mean they won't have civil liability from shareholders in the bank, but I do think they, they're probably protected from criminal liability at this point. 
Norris Lafitte also testified that he learned that Murdoch had lost his job at the law firm and Alec was trying to use property that wasn't his as collateral for loans and that Murdoch was using money in conservatorships that Russell Lafitte oversaw. His quote is, this is a horrible offense. You are not supposed to take people's money and use it in that way. Banks live on trust. That brings us to the next person to testify, Jean Seconder. She was CFO at PMPED when this was all going down. She also has a strong relationship with Lafitte. Russell was her brother-in-law. And she says she trusted him implicitly. The bombshell in her testimony is she's describing a situation where she's confronting Alec about these missing attorney's fees. She had concerns because of the boating accident. And during this meeting, it came to an abrupt end when Murdoch received a call about his father being moved into hospice. And the important part of this is it was the day of the murders. This is the first time we've heard that, that things were really coming to a head and the murders happened a few hours later. And it also may describe why he was on the phone with Chris Wilson two times on the way there and on the way back. Oh, because he knows things are going, the attorney fees are in question. Right. They're trying to get to the bottom of this attorney's fee situation. John, does anything jump out uh, about Seconder's testimony? Well, this is the first time that we have confirmed knowledge or testimony that Alec knew people were on to him. And so the timing of that conversation is very important and in that it sets up motive in other proceedings for murder. Also, when we look at how tightly related all these parties are, it's very possible that Gene is friends with poor poor Mrs. Murdoch. Maybe Alex is, is this conversation is the thing that sets Alec off into the into the bowels of what he's indicted for in state court. That, that, that this is the thing that made him realize he couldn't hide it anymore and he had to take drastic action. I want to point out why this is different because all along we've been told it happened right before the Labor Day attempted murder-suicide thing with Cousin Eddie. That's when we have been thinking this whole time that he was fired from PAPD, and that's when it all came out. But now it turns out he knew something was going down right before the murders. I'm not totally clear on why this would be a motive, though, because that would still not solve your financial problems. Still going to come out. What do you think, John? I don't, I don't think it relates to motive. I think it now relates to intent. What, what was the state of mind of Alec on the day of the murder? It is not, you know, congenial phone calls, conversations with family members. It's he has just been confronted by the person that's in charge of all the bank accounts for his law firm and been told there are problems here and I need answers. Then through his own statements given publicly after the murder, he says, oh, I was on the phone with Wilson. Well, now we have an idea of why he was on the phone with Wilson. He was trying to cover up, potentially, all these things, all the, all the withdrawals, overdrawn, trust, trust accounting issues that ultimately led to indictments here. But also shows that he, he is now 
officially on notice that other people know what he's up to. I, I think the state will say he he knew he was in trouble. And I and there may be testimony that somebody spoke to her and yeah, his wife and told him, hey, there's some issues. You might need to talk to your husband. If I'm remembering correctly, when the initial reports came out from what Jim Griffin said, he said that they were having everyday conversations. I think that was the term he used. Oh, the night of the, the, the murder. Right. So everyday conversations about missing money. That's something. And also, if you remember, there was a hearing coming up about the boating fatality, I think two days, I think two days after the murders, where it was going to be decided whether or not Alec had to reveal all his finances. So things are starting to boil up at this point, for sure. Then Daniel takes his turn at second year. Daniel is uh, Russell's attorney. And a big part of his cross-examination is about Alec Murdoch. Talks about certain qualities. Did he have the gift of gab, a big personality, and a God-given gift of using people as pawns? I agree, Seconder said. And then Daniel asked whether Murdoch created an illusion, an illusion of chaos. And she agreed. Talked about Murdoch having an extraordinary memory. He was able to keep his lies straight. So, John, this is an obvious attack on Murdoch and trying to get to Russell as a pawn. And this is all fair game because we're not supposed to do the good guy defense. This is fair game for the defense to try to argue this this idea that that it's almost like Alec could cast a spell on people and and get them to do things that that they wouldn't do otherwise. But because he was so you know persuasive and so affable and so you know, respected in the community that people like Russell just went along with it for that reason. And again, you're, you're, it's not the nice guy defense necessarily, but it is kind it. They're trying to show what Russell's state of mind was to undercut the criminal intent element that the, that the federal government has to prove. I wonder one more thing that was Daniel, got from the testimony in his cross-examination. Seconder said many years, Alec's income was more than a million dollars. Think about that. Many years, he's making more than a million dollars, yet he still needs to rip people off. And to the tune of, I don't know what we're up to now, nine or $10 million. I still goes back to where is all this money? What do you want to hammer uh, next, Seton? Well, let's talk about some of the testimony that Malinowski gave. He's also a member of the Palmetto State Bank Board and a family member of Russell Lafitte. And current bank CEO. So he talks about this $680,000 check that was to refund the money that was stolen from Arthur Badger. Arthur Badger was one of the alleged victims of Alec Murdoch. He had a $680,000 trust. And Russell comes up with some sort of agreement with PMPD that Palmetto State Bank will pay 50% back and PMPD will pay 50% of this money back. So the $680,000 is missing, or they loaned it or whatever, and uh, he decides, well, uh, we'll cover it up by, uh, you know, I'll pay 50%, you pay 50%. Right. That so they're, crazy. they're just trying to refund this money and come up with some sort of deal, and he's thinking that he, I guess, is doing the bank a favor by <laughs> protecting them from some sort of legal 
culpability in this whole mess. So it certainly seems like a straight up cover up. Yes. Analyzing what we hear with that, it just is unreasonable. And I think that's, you know, when if if Russell Lafitte is convicted, it will be over a transaction like that. It will also be over any kind of loan given while accounts are overdrawn. You've got 12 South Carolinians sitting in that jury box who all know that if they went to a bank to get a loan and they had negative amounts in their account, it ain't going to happen. And so it is beyond the pale really for anybody except apparently Alec Murdoch. And so I think this may be killer testimony to Lafitte's claims. And a quote from the state paper, they asked Malinowski if Russell had the authority to pay the law firm on his own. And Malinowski said, quote, he did not. But another thing that Malinowski said when he was cross-examined by Daniel is that Murdoch had been a longstanding, the family had been a longstanding mm-hmm. clients of the bank that a lot of times lawyers would take out loans from the bank and pay it back when they got their bonuses. It sounds like it's been going on for a long time. If you're like Murdoch, you can always say, oh, that that big uh, settlement's coming any day now. Don't worry about that. We also need to talk about whether Alec Murdoch may potentially be a witness. There was apparently a letter sent to the judge by Alec's attorneys about his possibility of testifying. The judge shut it down and said he would be issuing an order. Now it does, I've checked Pacer today, and there is an order, but it is sealed. I think there were a couple reports, maybe in Fitz News and elsewhere, about Alec testifying in exchange for some sort of immunity. So, John, I, I, the question I would have is, they can't possibly be thinking that would be okay, can they? Be Alec Murdoch is certainly a, as big a part of this whole thing as Russell Feed, if not more. Why would they even consider giving Murdoch immunity? This is a game that's being played. There's no way in the world that they are suddenly going to issue immunity to Murdoch for anything. And so I I see this being more so that people like us talk about it than an actual uh, proffer of, of willingness to testify. So you do not think Alec Murdoch will be a witness? I don't know right now. I would like to hear the argument of the defense counsel when it's when it's time for them to call him. I don't think the, the feds are going to use him in their case in chief. But I do think the defense has a strategy. They have, they have a defense planned on if they get to call him, and then they have a defense planned on if they don't get to call them. So that that section of the trial is when we'll, we'll know for sure. Another thing to note is Prosecutor Emily Limehouse asked Judge Gurgle to admonish Lafitte's lawyers because they apparently talked to Alec Murdoch's lawyers and his brother John Marvin about possibly having John Marvin ask Alec to testify that Lafitte's innocent of conspiracy. And Limehouse said the request for Murdoch's testimony is moot. Because Gurgle's ruling says Murdoch can't be called unless he plans to testify with meaningful input. 
She explained John Marvin Murdoch will be called as a witness, and such contact with a prospective witness is improper. And Gurgle obliged to admonish them. Uh, admonishment just means don't do that again. It's not a. Is it a major problem? No, I mean on the defense attorney side, you got to balance the zealous advocacy with professional conduct. If they really, really need Alec to testify, they're going to try to figure out how to get him to testify, and so they might risk getting a finger wag in their face by the prosecution and potentially by a judge because they believe the value of his testimony far outweighs the risk of being told you're being a bad lawyer. So I, I don't, it's, it's nothing major as a, as a prosecutor, you never liked talking to your witnesses or talking to the, to somebody to be like, oh, yeah, the defense lawyer called me last night. And you're like, oh, that's great. And so, <laughs> you know, like you're like, well, what? Obviously, then you're like, well, what would they ask? Because we we want to you know, that helps us know what the theory of the case was. Well, who's the, what's um, the rules on talking to it? If it's if it's your like, if it's say John Marvin would be the prosecution witness, then defense cannot talk to him. But if it if it's defense's witness, they're allowed to talk to him. A defense lawyer can can contact the government's witnesses because they're entitled through discovery to know what, what the substance of their testimony might be. Now <laughs> that's where we go from black. Yeah. You know, we go from gray to black and white. If you say some, some promise or threat or the criminal, the, the accused criminal really wants you to know X, that can get you into okay. th that. That's not a good move. I I always found it was better to to build your own case and not be dependent on what the other side's witnesses were going to say because you don't have any control over that as a, as a defense attorney. So I I never saw much use in calling a family member. Let, let's let's say it's like in a murder case, you wouldn't call the mom of the de decedent as a defense lawyer, that phone call is not going to go well. Right. Uh, but some defense lawyers did that. And you were always like, I can't believe somebody was dumb enough to do that. Cause they obviously get an earful. In and of itself, John Martin, them talking to John Marvin is not an issue. It just depends what they talk about. I, that's exactly it. Okay. So, so is it inappropriate for them to have called John Marvin? Not at all. Depending on if they were trying to influence his testimony, that's a problem. If they were just trying to gather information, not a problem. How was it possible that Ellie could testify considering so much of the evidence right now may be going to motive and a lot of the things that could incriminate him? How, how would it be possible? I mean, I know his attorneys have indicated that he would plead the fifth on some things, but I just don't know how it would be possible for him to testify at all at this point. After the testimony of the CFO of the law firm, I don't think he can take the stand. I, I just I don't thinking. see a scenario where, hey, Alex, we think it'll really help your friend and his defense if you come and totally throw yourself under the bus. I don't. I think that would probably be malpractice if they actually let him come and testify. That's what I was thinking. I mean, he can throw himself under the bus, but I just don't know how his lawyers would ever allow that. John, thanks, man. Appreciate it. 
Well, thanks. I'm looking forward to seeing what the next week brings. I would I would assume the the government's probably going at least midweek, and then we'll hear from defense. And then they're you know they'll have a motion to dismiss at the end of the federal government's evidence. Then they will make their arguments about who who can testify and what 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 can be testified about in the defense. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Great. Thank you, John. All right. Bye-bye. Reach out to us at Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, MurdochPodcast.com, and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Always grateful you're hanging with us, and we'll talk soon. Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.